The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, where you'll gain the tools, knowledge, and confidence you need to erase the unknowns, feel in control, and have an even better birth, no matter how you deliver. My name is Liesl Teen, mom of two, practicing labor and delivery nurse, and your host. From over eight years and counting of working at the bedside, I know that knowledge is the key to an even better birth. So tune in each week to learn about all things pregnancy, birth, and postpartum from me, a labor and delivery nurse that's seen it all. And now let's get into this week's episode. Today on the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, I am joined by the founder of 4 Kira for Moms, Charles Johnson. Charles unfortunately lost his wife, Kira, during a routine C-section at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, California. He founded 4 Kira 4 Moms in 2017 as a response to his experience to be a voice for other mothers and families facing unnecessary maternal loss and to help put an end to the maternal mortality health crisis. You see, here in the U.S., Black women are four times more likely to die during pregnancy and birth than white women, and this is due to implicit bias and systemic racism within the healthcare system, lack of access to high-quality maternal health care and resources, and so many other factors. I was so honored when Charles reached out so that we could talk about this tragic epidemic, learn what platforms like Four Kira Four Moms are doing to spark change, shed light on this issue in general, and discover what we can do to support his mission. I just got off recording with him and he is just so lovely. His story is just so, so tragic and it's so important to hear though. So without further ado, let's hear about Kira's story. Hi, Charles. Welcome to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today with me. Lisa, it is an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for just the work that you all are doing to just inform and empower families. It's such important work. So it's an honor to be spending some time with you all today. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about you and yourself and this platform. I know we're going to get into your story and everything that you guys are doing kind of later in this episode, but can you just start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and kind of why you founded this platform, what your vision is, what your mission is? Sure, absolutely. So um, Charles Johnson the fourth. I am the fourth. Oh, <laughs> the fourth, right? The fourth. And uh, Dromo actually have a fifth, which leads me into who I really am. I am yeah. a dad. I am an advocate. I fancy myself a dad advocate. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just somebody that was dealt a pretty rough hand and decided that I was going to do something about it. And so I found an organization called Four Cure for Moms, which is a nonprofit organization that is in honor of my wife, who we're going to talk about in a moment. But not only my wife, Kira, but every other mother in our country that has made the ultimate sacrifice, giving the gift of life, that is giving birth. And so our mission is to eradicate this maternal mortality crisis right here in the United States. 
and make sure that it's viewed as what it truly is. And that is a human rights issue. So we're really working hard to make our country a better, safer place for mothers and babies. And so we didn't ask for this fight, but it's something that we have no plans of backing down from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I know that your platform, obviously, like you said, was founded in response to your wife's death. So I think it was just during a routine C-section. You guys went in, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was just like a scheduled C-section. Do you mind opening up and just telling some details of your story? Sure, sure, sure. So, you know, I just want to thank you again for the opportunity to share. And this is never easy, but I share this in hopes to prevent what happened to us to happen to other families. So first and foremost, we just kind of have to talk about Kira, right? So like I say all the time, that I was fortunate enough to meet a woman that absolutely changed my life. We're talking about a woman that was way out of my league. We're talking about a woman that raced cars, who spoke five languages fluently, who ran marathons, (laughs) right? Who was a pilot. She was a skydiver. And I never saw somebody fit so much into a 24-hour day, right? Mm -hmm. Just sunshine personified. And I'm a huge kid. I always wanted to be a father. And so we welcomed our first son, Charles V, right, in September of 2014. And it's just over the moon. It's so cool to have, you know, just to be a dad and to mm-hmm. just have that experience. But we always talked about how neat it would be to have back-to-back boys, right? These boys that were really close yeah. to age <laughs> who would just grow up getting on each other's nerves and ultimately being having each other's backs and being built-in best friends. And so when we found out that we were welcoming our second son, Langston, in April of 2016, we were just over the moon, just ecstatic. <laughs> and so... The painful irony I'm going to share with you and your listeners and viewers today is that we had recently relocated from Atlanta, Georgia to Los Angeles, California. And um, as a father, as a husband, you want the best for your family. And so because of that, we made the decision to give birth at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles because it was our understanding that this was the best place. It was this supposed to be this fancy hospital in Beverly Hills that was supposed to be the best place in California particularly in the labor of obstetrics. And so we made the decision to give birth at Cedars. On April 12th of 2016, we went in for what we expected to be a routine scheduled cesarean. It's important to understand a couple of things to level set this conversation. This was a routine cesarean that was at our obstetrician's recommendation. Kira had absolutely no complications throughout her pregnancy. All signs pointed to both our new baby Langston and Kira both being exceptionally healthy. So on April 12th of 2016, we walked into Cedar Sinai after we expected to be the happiest day of our lives, Liza, and we walked right into a nightmare. So we went in for the delivery at two o'clock. Langston was born perfectly healthy, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes. I tease all the time, you know, looking just like me. <laughs> and so this was it. Everything we had talked about, everything we had hoped for, it was finally here. Yeah. And so I know that a lot of the mothers and families may be familiar with cesarean yeah. deliveries. And so... They took us back to recovery, which is standard in a cesarean delivery. And as we are there in recovery, Kira is there resting and Langston is in the little toaster incubator thing. Just Toaster. I like that word. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The little cranial thing. The bassinet is what we call it. (laughs) Yeah. The little little bassinet uh, incubator thing. And um, they're both resting. And I'm just sitting there just soaking it all in, all the pride and all the joy of just becoming a father for a second time, just overwhelmed with gratitude. As I'm sitting there, 
I look down and I see blood beginning to come from the Foley catheter at Kira's bedside. Mm-hmm. So this is around four o'clock, okay? The delivery was at two. So I bring it to the attention of the doctors and the nurses at Cedars. And so they come in, they examine Kira. They do a couple of things. They take all her vitals. They examine her physically. They do an ultrasound. And they can see that there's fluid beginning to build up in her abdomen. They take blood work and they order a CT scan that was supposed to perform STAT. Now for STAT, for me, and for I'm sure many of the people that are joining us today, that means right now. Mm -hmm. That means right now. And so at this point, this is around four o'clock and I'm concerned, but I'm thinking my baby is healthy and my wife is healthy and we're at Cedar sinai right? Yeah. So. All her blood work comes back and it shows that all her blood levels are normally low. She's sensitive to the touch. The ultrasound is showing that there's fluid beginning to fill in her abdomen. So there's very clear signs very early on that Kira is hemorrhaging significantly. But four o'clock, five o'clock comes, no CT scan. Okay. Mm-hmm. Six o'clock comes, no CT scan. And I'm asking, look, well, where's the CT scan? They're saying, oh, sir, sir, it's coming. It's coming. Seven o'clock comes, no CT scan. Now, by this time, Kira is shivering uncontrollably, right? I was going to ask, what is she doing during this time? Kira is there doing her best to be brave. She's getting weaker. She's becoming pale. She's in a lot of pain. But Kira was not a complainer. She was tough and brave to a fault. And so she was doing her best to manage the pain. And she was attempting to breastfeed Langston. But she was in a lot of pain. And by this time, 7 o'clock, she's shivering because she's losing so much blood. Yeah. And of course, I'm becoming more and more alarmed. Look, look what's going on. Where's the CT scan? Are we taking her back for surgery? And they're telling me, sir, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. 8 o'clock comes. No CT scan. Now, it's important to understand also is that when we look back at Kira's medical records, Kira was classified a surgical emergency at 6.44 p.m. Oh. 7 o'clock comes. She's still there suffering. 8 o'clock comes. I'm still there begging, asking, are we taking her for a CT scan? They're making mention of surgery, but nobody is doing anything. Eight o'clock, nine o'clock comes. She's still there. Condition is getting worse. She's more and more pale. She's having more and more trouble staying awake. Oh my gosh. And I'm asking, look, what's going on? And we're just getting this game of runaround. So the only thing that they've done up to this point is give her IV fluids. Wow. And so around nine o'clock, a nurse comes in to change the IV fluids. And after she got done, I walked with her to the back of the room where Kira couldn't hear me. And I just grabbed her by both of her hands and I held them tight and I looked her in her eyes and I said, ma'am, can you please help us? My wife is not looking good. She's in a lot of pain. People have come and told us that they would take her back for surgery. Nothing's happened. They said that they would take her back for a CT scan hours ago. Nobody has come. Can you please just help us? Please, can you help us? At which point this woman snatched her hands away from me and said words to me that haunt me to this day. She said, sir, your wife just isn't a priority right now. Are you serious? Oh your my wife God. just isn't a priority. Nine o'clock. I'm asking, I'm begging them to do something. Nothing. Ten o'clock comes. Kira's still there suffering. Eleven o'clock. It wasn't until 12.30 a.m. the morning, the following morning, that they finally made the decision to take Kira back to surgery. After allowing her to bleed and suffer needlessly for more than 10 hours while myself and my family begged and pleaded for them to just do the bare minimum. Yeah. And so at this point, it's 12.30 a.m. 
they finally made the decision to take her back to surgery. I am frustrated. I am exhausted. I'm angry. Yeah. But part of me is relieved because they're finally doing something. Yeah. And so they begin to wheel her towards the OR. And so Kira is very weak at this point, but she's conscious and she's aware of everything that's going on. And I'm walking next to her bedside and I'm holding her hand. And um, she says to me, uh, baby, I'm scared. I'm scared. And keep on this woman that <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard her say that before. She was a skydiver. She was, was I was going to say she's a pilot. She does all these yeah. things. Yeah. Maybe I'm scared. And I did the only thing I knew to do was just reassure her that everything's going to be okay. Um, and we talk about this, and we'll get into this a little bit later in the conversation, but there's just levels to how Kira was failed. But as we're making this walk, the doctor that had been responsible for her care or lack of care, um, who delivered Langston and was there to take her back to that second surgery, he overheard this conversation, Kira expressing her fear and one of the things that's hardest for me to wrap my mind around six years later, that at no point during this entire ordeal did the level of empathy or sense of urgency for Kira's life ever escalate. And what he said in response to her saying that she was scared was, he says, ooh, it's always hard for me to say. He said, um, it's not a big deal. Sometimes these things happen. I'm going to go in through the same incision I made for the cesarean. I'm going to fix it, and she'll be back in 15 minutes. Just completely invalidating everything that she's She'll be back feeling. in 15 minutes. And so I'm walking, and we're walking, we're walking. We finally get to the end of this long corridor. It seemed like a mile long, and it was uh, this set of double doors open um, into the operating room, and they closed behind here. And I couldn't go any further. Yeah. And when those doors closed behind Kira, that was the last time I saw my wife alive. When they took her back into the operating room and they opened her up, there were three liters of blood in her abdomen. Oh, my God. From where she had been allowed to bleed and suffer needlessly while myself and my family begged and pleaded for them to just care for her. Listen. Yeah. Do anything. Listen. Right? And so Kira deserves so much better. And... You know, I'm always transparent when I tell this story, as hard as it is, I'm always transparent about the fact that when we walked into Cedar sinai the afternoon of April 2nd, the thought that my wife would not walk out to raise her boys, it never crossed my mind. I mean, why would it, right? right? Yeah. It was supposed to be a walk in the park for us, right? And it never crossed my mind. But what happened is that, um, and I considered myself progressive, I've criticized myself well-read, I considered myself involved. I went to every single um, OB appointment. Uh, Kira never missed a prenatal vitamin. We thought that we had done everything right. I did not leave her bedside. I was there for the delivery. I was there for every single moment when she was in recovery, but it wasn't enough. And what I didn't understand and what happened is the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months. I began to hear other stories of women who had these horrific birthing experiences. And I began to hear other stories of women who had given, made the ultimate sacrifice, giving the gift of life and who had lost their lives giving birth. And at first, I'm going to be honest with you, I thought that it was people's way of trying to support me in my grief, right? I thought that that's why I was hearing all these stories. But the more I'm hearing these stories, the more that I'm realizing, wait a minute, something's just not right. I'm people this 2016. And that's why I began to do the research myself, and I came to understand what I know a lot of the folks 
and our audience understand is that we are in the midst of a maternal mortality crisis right here in the United States. It's shameful. And I was blown away by two things. I was blown away by two things. I was blown away by the fact that this was happening, but I was blown away by it didn't seem like any, nobody was talking about it. How is this America's dirty little secret and how has this been buried for so long? And so that is really what has brought me to this point. I felt like I owed it to Kira. I felt like I owed it to my boys to try and do something and to try and prevent what happened to Kira from happening to other mothers. And that is what led myself to found uh, this organization and really work really, really hard on what I call the maternal health revolution in our country. Yeah. Gosh, like what you guys are doing over there is really, really incredible. Can you tell me, I know that this happened in 2016. And when did you guys get started and kind of how it began? (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) that's an excellent question because I look back, we just had a board meeting for the nonprofit last weekend. I spent so much time just up close with this stuff. And I really listed all of kind of the things that we had done in the program that we had going forward. I was just like, wow, okay. I guess we have been pretty busy. But so I felt like I had to do something. And so I made the decision to share Kira's story publicly for the first time the Friday before Mother's Day in 2017. So a little bit more than a year after Kira passed. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how it would be received, but I felt like I had to do something. I felt like I had to try. I thought that hopefully by sharing Kira's story that hopefully it might bring attention to what was happening and somehow prevent it from happening to other families, never understanding where this is going to go or how this is going to shake out. But I felt like I had to do something. I don't have a background in advocacy. I don't have a background in legislation. I don't have a background in policy or any of these things. So I felt like I had to do something. And yeah. I naively thought that after I shared your story, I would go back to being a soccer dad in obscurity, raising my two boys, but the universe and Kira had very different plans for my life. And so we shared this story in 2017. And the way that it resonated with people to this day is still kind of beyond my comprehension. And it kind of created this spark that has led to an amazing increase in awareness, an amazing increase in investment and raising, increase in policy. And this has definitely been a we thing because the reality situation, I have to take a moment to say that this is, I'm very fortunate that there's a lot of recognition for the work that I've done and for Cure's story, but this is about a we thing. There are people that have been working on this who have been screaming from the mountaintops that women are dying far before I even knew it was a problem. And so we kind of have to level set too and just take it before we kind of go into what we've done is kind of talk about the problem, right? So yeah. some, some people may understand, but so when we talk about maternal mortality in the United States and what that means. Right now, the United States leads the industrialized world in women dying from childbirth. What that means is that every single day in the United States, two women will not go home with their precious babies. More than 800 women a year are dying from pregnancy-related causes and childbirth complications. I'm going to share a couple of statistics that are even more scary and they'll drive this home. The CDC has determined that over 60% of those deaths are considered preventable, right? So these are women like Kira, like Shalonda Irving, like Amber Rose Isaac, women who should be here with their children, who should be at the first day of kindergarten, who should be screaming at soccer games on Saturday, who should be at graduations, dancing at weddings, right? And we're losing them needlessly. Between 2001 and 2017, the maternal mortality rate, these statistics are crazy, but I want people to wrap their head around it. The maternal mortality rate 
in Europe decreased by 47% during the same time period in rose in North America by 52%. Oh my gosh. Right? The United States is both the most dangerous and the most expensive country in the world to give birth in, right? We spend more money per capita for births than any other country. And yet mothers are dying at a disproportionate rate. And we also cannot have a substantive conversation about this maternal mortality crisis, which is affecting all women and all families from all walks of life without having a conversation about the manner in which it is disproportionately affecting African-American women. African-American mothers are dying five times as often as Caucasian mothers. And so we have to have candid conversations about the roles that bias and racism are playing in modern day obstetrics and healthcare. So these are all things that I was shocked by. And so I felt like I had to do something about it. So we founded this organization and have worked kind of relentlessly to make our country a better, safer place. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I know you guys have done so much in the few years that you've been around. So I really want to get into specifically kind of what you guys have done legislation wise. And then also, I know you guys have a ton of resources on your website and just, you know, within your organization for unfortunate families who have been through similar experiences, but also for Black women that are currently pregnant. So I just want to talk about all of that stuff. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. So here's how we approach this, right? Because there is so much. The reality of the situation is that this is a complex problem, but we can fix it. And so we have to approach it from a couple of different angles. And the way Mm -hmm. we do it is an organization, a small but mighty organization. It is legislate, advocate, educate, right? So let's kind of start with educate. So educate, advocate, legislate. Let's take it from that part. So we talk about educate. The first part, and that's why we're so happy to have these conversations, is awareness, right? Making people aware of what are the challenges and that this is even happening because oftentimes these situations, these conversations have been buried. And people, when we tell people, they're like, whoa, no, this isn't happening. Yes, it is. But once we're making people aware, educating folks and giving them the tools to not only survive, but thrive before, during, and after childbirth. Educating families about how to have important conversations with your provider right? Educating families about what the various birthing options that are available to you are. What is a full-blown hospitalized birth? What does that look like? What is midwifery look like? What does doula care look like? What is an integrated model of care where you have multiple birth workers at your side look like? Helping them understand what options are available and helping them understand what may be right for them. I am of the belief, because the one thing about childbirth in the United States, there's a lot of tribalism. And People who are about doula care, they think that people in hospitals are completely evil and they're horrible. People who I, are, right. People, we can talk about right, that all day. Yeah. That's the whole thing, right? And so here's, here's what I'm saying, right? On both sides, right? And everybody has a thing. People, you know, think that a lot of OBGYNs think that doula care is a bunch of hocus pocus. But here's what I'm here to say is that my belief in our stance as an organization is that a birthing person, a mother who is giving birth in the United States should have access to the birthing experience of her choice. If she wants to give birth in her living room, in a tub surrounded by family and music and flowers, that is her choice. If she wants to give birth in a hospital and wants to hit the button every time she feels pain, that is her choice. But what we wanna do is we wanna make sure that they have all the information 
and the associated risk factors for whatever decision they like. So they can make an educated, informed decision for as what is best for them. This is a very important thing. Not only is it their choice, but it should be paid for, right? Yeah. And yeah. then we can also get into a whole conversation, you don't get me started, about paid leave <laughs> for mama and papa and everybody, right? So oh, those yeah. are all conversations. But so it should be paid for. And so when we talk about empowering families with those resources to understand the different options available to them, it also means empowering them about how to advocate for themselves if they are in a situation where they feel like they are being, their concerns aren't being addressed, where they feel like they're being dismissed, possibly discriminated against, where they're not getting dignified, compassionate care. How can they navigate those situations? So that's kind of the education component. Yeah. When we talk about advocacy, it is making sure that we are a voice for the voiceless, making sure that we are centering disadvantaged populations and people, their voices are being heard and their needs and concerns are being addressed. When we talk about investments, when we talk about policy reform, right? Mm -hmm. And last but not least, legislation. So we've been fortunate to have some really, really, really significant legislative wins, you know, Politics is a dirty, nasty business. It is. But Ugh. it's a necessary thing when yes. we talk about this. So in 2017, I had the opportunity to work with a bipartisan coalition. And I had to focus on bipartisan because when we talk about this issue of maternal health in our country, it is one of the few issues in our country right now that is uniquely bipartisan. Yeah. I don't care if you're from the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, the Tea Party, the After Party. I don't care. Everybody in this country should be focused on how we can support mothers and babies. It doesn't matter. And so that's how we have framed this. And we've galvanized some support from both sides of the aisle on both state and federal legislation. So 2017, we passed the first ever piece of federal legislation to prevent mothers from dying in childbirth. And it's called the Preventing Maternal Death Act. What that bill did is it allowed the CDC to create what are called maternal mortality review committees in all 50 states. So now... When a woman passes away from childbirth or childbirth-related causes, there is a committee in each state that investigates all the circumstances associated with her passing. Was it her first pregnancy? Was it her fifth? Did she have a cesarean? Was it a vaginal delivery? Did she have public insurance? Did she have private insurance? Did she have hypertension? Was she obese, right? And then we can collect the data in a standardized way, which goes a huge way towards helping us better understand. Very proud about that bill, HR 1318. We were able to pass it successfully. Uh, in 2017. It was a huge step because it was the first time the federal government recognized we have a problem and invested resources to preventing it. It was a big win, but it was just that it was the first step. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, work really hard to get that done. What can we do to top it? So how crazy can we get? And so in 2021, we went back to Congress and introduced a huge legislative package called the Momnibus, which is a comprehensive package made up of 13 different pieces of legislation, all addressing the various aspects of the maternal health crisis in the United States. Everything from social determinants to health. How does the environment impact mothers, right? Mm -hmm. Even legislation about protecting incarcerated and detained mothers, because even in states throughout this country, there are still instances of forced hysterectomies. Ugh, yeah, it's... it's Stuff crazy. that we don't want to know, but what we yeah. need to know. It's yeah, we awful need to know things. In prisons, right? And, you know, in the interest of time, you can read more about it at the Black Maternal Health Caucus's website or on 4 moms.com yeah. or if you just Google the Momnibus. But also, we're very proud of the fact that within that group of bills is the Kira Dixon-Johnson Act, which is named for Kira. And it'll do a couple of really cool things, including increased accountability for providers, investments in community-owned women of color organizations, but it'll also go a long way to diversification of the perinatal workforce, making sure that 
families have access to doula and midwifery care. So we're extremely proud of that. On the state level, we've had a lot of legislative wins. My home state of Georgia, we increased postpartum Medicaid, Medicare for every mother from six weeks postpartum to a year postpartum. We passed a huge bill in California, California Momnibus, which is going to do a lot of amazing investments in maternal care and just completely raise the standards of sexual care and set an example for states across the country. So we're just yeah. working really hard to make sure that very soon we're able to talk about this in a historical context. Yeah, I love it. We've talked about kind of stuff that you've done. Tell me if you can, I'm sure you can, what you're kind of hoping, <laughs> hoping happens rather soon. So I think the first thing that we're really excited about is getting this momnibus done from a yeah. legislative standpoint. It's an interesting time right now. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but right now, towards in the end of the year, you know, we have a big midterm election. So stuff kind of stalls out. Everybody is working. They're not doing their job. They're trying to make sure they have a job. So everybody's trying to get reelected. But after the midterms, we're going to push to maybe get this done and push through in a year in budget reconciliation. If not, we'll start pick up where we left off in early 2023. There are going to be some very, very, very exciting partnerships and announcements. What I will say is there is a major, major, very well-known retailer in the United States that is going to make significant investments and we're going to partner with to utilize their infrastructure to provide maternal health care particularly in rural settings. I can't say exactly who it is, but it shouldn't be too hard to figure out who it is. But it'll be big news, and we're going to be announcing our partnership with them. We're going to start that here in our home state of Georgia. One of the challenges that we have with maternal health care is we have maternal health deserts. Mm -hmm. Even in cities like D.C., in our urban centers, there are whole sections of D.C. You know, Hospitals are closing, and there's no obstetrical care. Also, the same thing plagues a lot of our rural communities where there isn't of sexual care for miles and miles and miles, which contributes to very poor maternal health outcomes. So utilizing the infrastructure these retailers have to provide maternal care is going to be a game changer. Hopefully we can get this right. We're going to work out some kinks here in Georgia and we'll take that nationwide. We are really working with universities also to reimagine how we train and inform and empower students. Yeah. We have actually or in partnership with Virginia Commonwealth University, we actually have created a curriculum using Cure's case. And so we're working on a program now that we will actually be able to impact 25% of the medical students in the country in the next four years, utilizing wow. this curriculum and basically grounding them in compassionate care. Because what happens is when you hear this, regardless of who the family is, what the walk of life they come from, when you're talking about their experience, it is not systematic failures, but there always seems to be a compassion deficit. There is the failure for the providers to see, value, and validate their concerns in the same way they would their mother, their sister, their husband. And so we're excited to do that and um, to have some evidence-based research around how intent to practice with compassionate care can impact the total patient experience, not just in maternal care, but in healthcare across the board. So we're excited about that. So those are just a couple of things we're looking forward to. What else is going on? Um, Yeah, those are some of the big ones. Those are some of the big ones. Those are pretty big. I mean, I didn't expect you to say much else. Like, that's a lot. You got a lot on your plate. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, finally, 
I want to talk about some ways that our listeners, we have a lot of listeners who are currently pregnant and a lot who have already had their babies, but are there any ways that our listeners can kind of get involved with this? If, you know, obviously from your episode, I'm sure anybody listening is like, oh my gosh, what can I do? But is there anything that our listeners can do to kind of get involved and help support? Yeah. So here's what I would say. I think the best thing that you can do, the first and foremost, is to have these conversations. And what I want to say is I want to speak directly to the listeners that are pregnant right now. I know that hearing these stories, stories like Kira's, hearing these statistics, they're not pleasing to hear. But I want you to know that you are going to have a fantastic, beautiful, wonderful, healthy pregnancy. And we're going to claim that. What we want to do is to make sure that we give you the tools to give yourself and your family the best chance to make that happen. And we don't want people to be fearful. We want people to be informed, right? And empowered with the information and knowledge to help navigate these circumstances and to put pressure on systems and providers to make sure that not only your family, but other families are getting the best care possible. So having these conversations with your provider, having these conversations with your friends and family who maybe pregnant, maybe looking to get pregnant, help them understand these risk factors and how to better navigate them. So there's plenty of information on 4cure4moms.com, the number 4-K-I-R-A, the number 4-M-O-M-S. And it's also 4cure4moms on all social media. We're constantly sharing resources that we're publishing, also other organizations that we partner with that are doing phenomenal work. And so we're going to continue to build out the resources that we have. We're also going to be putting infrastructure around community of volunteers that want to help to support families that are in distress, families that have been impacted by maternal mortality and loss. And so, yeah, if you're interested, we are definitely grateful for your support in whatever capacity you'd like to support, even if it's something as simple as just having a conversation. I love it. I know a conversation can go a long way. Yep. It can go a long way, very long way. Well, I know you mentioned your social media. It's at for Kira for moms. Is that where you are everywhere? I just want you to. Yep. Excellent question. Name. Yeah. Where people can find you on all platforms. (laughs) Exactly. It's for Kira for moms on all platforms. It's number four, K-I-R-A, the number four M-O-M-S. So yeah, for Kira for moms on all platforms is where you can find us and be able to keep up with the work. You'll be able to get updates on the legislation. You'll be able to keep up with, you know, some of my shenanigans with the kids. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask about that, how those two boys, because I have two boys too, but they're like a little bit younger than yours. My older one's going to be six and then my younger one is two and a half. And it's oh, a little cool. circus to having two it little is. boys. <laughs> Look, it is never a dull moment. <laughs> never a dull moment. This, so I'll show you, I, I keep some of these pictures on my desk. So I don't know if you can see this. Soon. I can't. This is one of my favorite ones. This is like (laughs) what my life became very quickly. And this is my fault because Charles, who is my older one, really is the most amazing, chill, mature kid. But I made the mistake for this. I scheduled a photo shoot during nap time. (laughs) Oh, God. And that's what I got for that, right? And that's what happened there. This boy is a little bit older. Oh. Right there. Love it. Oh, my goodness. Look at them. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all you may have declared. That's uh, that's Kira. That's Kira. Oh, I love it. Yep. Mm. Well, you're going to have to send me those pictures too so we can put it on the show notes page sure. for people to check out. Sure. Thank you so much, Charles, for joining me. This was My such honor. an amazing... Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. And I tell you what, I'm looking forward to everybody out there 
Uh, you can also, what you can do is you can go to forecureformoms.com and you can sign a petition to support the Momnibus legislation. It'll only take 30 seconds. Enter your first, last name and your zip code. And what the website will automatically do is create a letter that will go to both of your U.S. senators and your local congressperson. So please feel free to do that when you have a moment. And I'm looking forward to coming back and I will come here and we will talk about it and we will celebrate once we get this thing packed. Does yeah, good? love it. Love it. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure. What an incredible story. I recorded that episode last year and sometimes I don't know exactly what the next podcast episode is going to be about. So I can't record this little end of the episode until I know. And I just went back and I mean, I knew what this episode was about and I remember recording it with him, but I just went back and looked at Four Kira, Four Moms and just was reading about his story again. And I went back and I listened to part of the episode that hasn't been edited yet. And I, oh, wow. What a story from Charles and just to hear it from his mouth. And yeah, wow. If you're still here with me and you've stuck through till the end, I'm sure you are just as emotional, if not more emotional, you know, than I am right now. It's a lot to hear a story like that. Well, okay. Next week on the Mommy Labor Nurse podcast, I am going to be on solo for you guys. And we're going to be talking about some really weird things that happen to your body right before labor. I get this question a lot in my DMs and just I see comments and stuff on Instagram of you guys asking, I'm having diarrhea. Does like that mean I'm going to go into labor soon or I'm having, you know, this, <laughs> does that mean labor is going to happen soon? And yeah, diarrhea is one of them, but there are definitely a lot of weird things that can happen to your body. And that usually happen to most people's bodies before you go into labor. So we're going to dive right in next week. Same time, same place. Already feeling a little more confident about pregnancy, birth and newborn life. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you can continue to erase the unknowns and never miss an episode. And if you're looking for even more, Instagram is definitely where I hang out the most. Come join our community of more than a half a million moms for birth education, tips, and solidarity. You can find me at mommy.labornurse. Check out today's show notes and a searchable library of every Mommy Labor Nurse podcast episode at mommylabornurse.com slash podcast. And while you're there, be sure to head to the blog to learn about our online birth classes too. See you next week. And remember, you can have an even better birth no matter how you deliver. <laughs>